the legendary isn't too much of a stretch for this person. So the Herald's education reporter, Simon Collins, is one of, if not the most respected journalist in the country. He's been at the Herald since 1983 uh, with an intermission from 1993 to 2001 running the independent Wellington newspaper, The City Voice, uh, with my predecessor on Media Watch, Jeremy Rose. And he's just announced that he's retiring in late March. Well, why is he so legendary as a journo? So, it's, 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 I guess, the body of work that he has put in. So I spent today just asking people who have worked with Simon for some stories just to illustrate what he's actually like as a journalist. So the first thing, or one of the things that everyone talks about, is his work ethic. And he has this classic thing, you know, of being there before people get there and being there after they left. But it's a little bit more than that. So someone that worked with him at the City Voice said that when they started the paper, he had a plan to actually door knock all 30,000 houses in the paper's potential circulation area. And when they said that probably wasn't going to be possible, he actually came back with a spreadsheet to show exactly how much time it would take. So he was absolutely committed to this task. Apparently he would often work 24 hours straight, and he used to write just so much content, uh, not just him, but the paper's staff as well, but there was so much content that he'd have too much for the paper. Uh, Someone who worked there laying out the papers said that Simon's solution to that wasn't actually to cut any of those stories, but just to make the paper's font smaller. So he was... (laughs) So committed to this paper that when it actually started struggling financially, it was a worker co-op that was pretty pioneering in that sense, but when it started struggling, he used to actually go out and deliver it himself in those late days. So uh, he's a person that, he has his own style, his own systems and methods. One of his former colleagues said uh, there's a decrepit contact system at the Herald that IT tried to shut down and Simon was pretty much the only person still using it, but it had every contact that he'd ever collected going back to 1983. So he successfully lobbied to have the system restored, and people just started calling it Simon's contact file. Apparently he also has a good head for numbers, but he's never used a kind of digital program to actually work them out. So he actually just constantly scribbles calculations on pieces of pad. Simon Collins. And why does he command such a lot of respect from fellow journalists? I mean, it's partly that diligence, but I don't think having a great work ethic is something to be commended on its own. I guess what's so amazing about him is actually the quality of that work and the quality of his mission, the actual lasting value that it provides. He's also just as um, impervious in, in, in a really unusual way to some of the more base you know, concerns of journalism, all these commercial imperatives, you know, clickability, sensationalism, even sometimes deadlines could sort of fall apparently by the wayside. Uh, the Herald's business reporter, Matt Nippett, who kind of announced that Simon was leaving, described him as almost monastic. And I'm sure he meant in demeanour because that's pretty accurate, but he also kind of operates as a remove a little bit from the cut and thrust of journalism. And in these kinds of journalism obits, there's often stories about all of the crazy things that a journalist did to get the story, you know, you know, semi-unethical, maybe actually kind of weirdly, um, weirdly amoral stuff that journalists might do to collect the story in the public good. Simon isn't really that kind of journalist from most accounts. His trick, if he has one, is just a 
talk to people who don't often get talked to and give them time to tell their stories. And he does that uh, at great effort and uh, exhaustively. And a person that worked with him at the City Voice said that the, the paper was always foregrounding the voices of people who aren't really heard. Well, Hayden, the word monastic that Matt Nippet used to describe it, it could leave the impression that he's not passionate, but that's not what you're saying, is it? No, I, I, I'm a bit wary of it because it's sort of this, it almost is the impression that he's this like meditative, placid, becalmed figure, but he's actually incredibly fiery. Well, that's accurate in terms of what his outward demeanour. He's not a, a, emotive or hugely expressive, but he's incredibly fiery about the things that he's passionate about, and especially on labour rights. So he's a staunch union rep at the Herald and is always trying to get people, or was always trying to get people to join the union. Uh, and he's so committed and passionate in that role that in 2007, he actually made an on-stage protest at uh, what was then called the Qantas Awards and is now called the Voyages over the Herald's move to outsource its sub-editing to Pagemasters, an Australian firm. So he's just constantly stood up for what he believes is the right thing to do. And that's what really gives uh, that work ethic uh, a value, I guess. And, you know, that, that story that I just told is pretty eye-opening if you've met someone because he's, he's almost shy in person. He would have hated the attention. And he carried out that protest because of the strength of his convictions. And every journalist I spoke to said that he made them feel proud to work in their industry. And I actually had an encounter with him early in my career. I wrote... Um, uh, I was at the North Shore Times. Uh, there's a story about uh, the refugee community from Myanmar, which I, uh, I think his wife is a part of. And he was just so generous and supportive and very humble. I don't think he would have ever known that I felt a bit bored of him, and he would have almost felt embarrassed of that fact. And I think that's a pretty common story. Everyone, he commands such mana, but he's obtained that in such a... Uh, uh, and not a showy way, just by um, always just just working in in a quiet and diligent and respectable way. And uh, I think that he would feel embarrassed by the <laughs> amount of respect that he commands, but he does command it. <laughs> yes. Well, you've given him a lot of attention tonight and well-deserved by the sound of it, Simon Collins. Uh, that's a good thing to have when you, when you retire, isn't it, that uh, your colleagues and those that you work with uh, really respect you. Yeah, I don't think, well, what do you think, Karen? Do you think we're going to get the same level, some sort of um, laudatory obit as that? I'm not too sure that I will. I don't know, an obit seems to suggest you're dead, so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Journalism obit, I guess. Okay, let's move on to RNZ and TVNZ, the merger, the proposed merger. They got their annual review at Select Committee today, and what were some of the topics that they were grilled? So they were grilled pretty intensely by the national MPs there, uh, particularly nationals Melissa Lee. And so she started out the entire thing. RNZ was appearing. She pointed out that recent surveys show only 59% of people trust trust RNZ. And she asked uh, Paul Thompson and the board chairman, Jim Mather, uh, why audience weren't trusting the station. And she argued that that was presumably because the station is seen as biased. Uh, and I guess she means towards the current government because that's her opposition, though that wasn't stated. Uh, now, RNZ's chief executive, Paul Thompson and Jim Mather, all pointed out that that 59% trust figure is actually 
the highest of any media organisation in the country. Uh, but that didn't deter Melissa Lee. She turned her attention to the government's new $50 million fund for public interest journalism, and her implication was that organisations like RNZ, and I guess others, maybe TVNZ, would be less willing to criticise the government if, that gov- if it meant putting that pool of money that they're accessing under threat. So this is a question, this is what she had to say. Would RNZ be prepared to challenge, critique and even call for the resignation of the government or ministers at the risk of losing access to the Public Interest Journalism Fund? Gee. It's a question, but it contains an accusation, doesn't it? And sorry about the quality of this audio. It was all happening over Zoom. Uh, you know, I'm I'm doing this via phone. Look, it's, it's bad audio all over the shop tonight. But uh, Melissa Lee there, that echoes what another national MP, Simon O'Connor, had to say uh, in the committee's annual review of the Ministry of Culture and Heritage back in February. So this is a very similar question. This is what he had to say. Laying my cards on the table, I'm uncomfortable that the Crown is funding the fourth estate and wanting some surety, as I'm sure those in the public the arm's length is going to be continued. What's going to allow the media to actively and rightly critique government and opposition, uh, despite the fact that they're getting millions and millions of dollars from the taxpayer? That's rule 101, though, isn't it, surely? Yeah, so that's Simon O'Connor. When you say 101, what, what do you mean? That, uh, that it's at arm's length. Yes, that it's at arm's length. Yeah, and that's enshrined in legislation that governs TVNZ and RNZ, and that was pointed out by Jim Mazer and, and Paul Thompson. Uh, both of them, now, they were asked, you know, would they, what would they do? You know, always being asked, what would they do if, you know, they had, they had to condemn the government or the government? And the, the question was, what, what if the government told you, if you run this story, we will cut your funding? And both of them said that was a very hypothetical situation, but of course they would invoke their right to editorial independence and run the story anyway. Uh, Thompson said that if the government gave it that kind of ultimatum, then they would just lose the funding. Uh, I just I, I, the the line of questioning is a little odd to me because I think it would probably offend just about any journalist that I've ever spoken to. The idea that they would somehow go easy on the government because the money's coming from them would sort of make, uh, would be a red rag to a bull to a lot of the journalists that I know. And actually, they would be pretty offended by that. And also, as you say, it's 101. This this is an ethical dilemma that takes place in every single newsroom because all of them have advertisers that are funding them. And, of course, they have pressure not to, you know, hassle Kiwi Bank or Briscoe's or whoever's doing the ads there. And that's why they have firewalls between the editorial departments and they try to enshrine as best they can. These borders have become more porous, but they try to enshrine as best they can this firewall between the money and the actual editorial department because without that, then the consumer doesn't trust you, the people that are uh, consuming your news aren't going to want to listen to you and they're just going to see you as another ad. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm surprised that those questions were even asked uh, you know, in that yeah. forum. Uh, yeah, I found, it, I found it quite interesting that TVNZ's Kevin Kenrick was asked a very similar question, but of course his station turns a tidy profit on its own and doesn't really need the government. So he had a slightly different take. This is what he had to say when he was asked whether he'd run a story uh, criticising the government. 
So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story is the question. 100%. The amount of funding we gets a round of drinks. <laughs> Pretty expensive uh, round of drinks, but we get the point. What wasn't talked about in the committee meeting? Was there anything that wasn't brought up? <laughs> Look, apologies if I missed it, but I did not hear once the... RNZ Youth Station being brought up. Of course, at this time last year, you might remember that was the number one topic of conversation. RNZ had proposed moving Concert FM off FM radio and replacing it with a youth station, and everyone was up in arms. Paul Thompson was uh, under the pump, you know. Uh, and that all got resolved with concerts staying on the air and the government promising RNZ the 102.2 frequency, which is reserved used to be Kiwi FM, but is now just kind of reserved for some, some sort of uh, public radio initiative. And that was supposed to be the solution. We're supposed to be working on a youth station for that frequency. wasn't really mentioned, just crickets. Uh, station board wasn't brought up uh, by the select committee. Is it still in the works, or was this just a poorly judged proposal that they're now trying to bury? And Mike from Oriental Bay, Hayden, says, hasn't RNZ's funding always come from the government? <laughs> Yes, yes, Mike. Well, that's right. Well, yeah. And uh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point, Michael Murray. It's just more money from the government, and I guess it's extra money from the government. But yes, and uh, I, I, the, I guess Melissa Lee's point uh, and Simon O'Connor's to an extent is they believe that biases the station towards the government of the day. Perhaps uh, I'm, I'm not too sure. It's, 100% thought out. And uh, Peter Scott in Wellington says, Simon Collins, what a totally amazing guy. Have a great retirement. Uh, and Paul in Auckland says, I did a Udemy course on deep work that describes the monastic style of deep work very much like how Hayden is saying about Simon Collins. So, Well, I'm not 100% sure that Simon Collins is actually a monk. He was just described as monastic by Matt Nipper, who is a colourful man. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear about deep work, but uh, I'm not sure that uh, I, what Simon is actually practising that.